How's everybody? All right, so we're, we're starting a series uh, called Rock and the Rolls, and we're going to show you a video clip in just a minute. But uh, before we do that, I want to preface my remarks this way. Uh, there, there's really two groups of people together here that each probably look at things very differently. And so it's a little bit of a challenge to do something like this, because there are those of us that grew up in more traditional, I would say, fundamentalist backgrounds that uh, honored, uh, you know, things about the scriptures and there's some things in there about women that we're going to look at and it's it's because of those things that are in there that has caused a certain level of suppression of women inside the church and so that group uh, I want to apologize to you up front because I'm going to take away your Lord and you're not going to know where I laid him the second group has never been exposed to that, and so culturally, that th- that is so out of step with where you are that as I'm talking about it, you're going to think we're from another planet. Um, so my apologies to you as well, but somehow we'll try to come to a meeting of the minds on this. Okay, so let's watch the video. Cool, huh? All right, let's start in Matthew, um, and I have a PowerPoint for you, or whatever. Presentation. I don't know. I'm showing my age, I'm sure. It's not really a PowerPoint, uh, but an overhead thing. So I got the scriptures and stuff up there. Forgive my lack of uh, polish this morning. I was up too late partying that Pablo has talent. So. <laughs> Matthew uh, 13, verse 33. says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. So I want you to get the picture. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast working inside of dough. Now think for a minute, how does yeast work inside of dough? It works very gradually, right? You don't see the effect of it at first, but given time, you see it grow throughout the entire loaf, right? And Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like that. And really within the context of Matthew, he's talking about how the kingdom operates within the world. In the other parables that he talks about, he talks about uh, the kingdom advancing on a global scale. And so really what he's talking about is the kingdom of heaven working through humanity or working inside and through our culture to bring transformation. But not just any transformation, a transformation that is established on... what Jesus himself was going to accomplish or basically that's established based on who the person of Christ is and what he accomplished for us in redemption by his death, burial and resurrection. If you think about it, leaven rises, doesn't it? And so while there are places in the Bible that leaven can be a type of sin, where both Jesus and Paul talk about the leaven of sin getting into the church and and, uh, polluting it or corrupting it, Jesus is not talking about that kind of leaven. He's talking about the power of his life, the power of his resurrection life being hidden inside of uh, our human structures, hidden inside of our culture, hidden inside of our world, and working gradually to bring transformation to it. It's very important that you understand that principle as we go forward, because what I want you to see uh, more than anything else this morning, what I want you to see is that the 
death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he brings into our lives works to transform humanity and works to transform really society in a gradual form or that what Jesus did set things on a certain trajectory. Everybody just... You, you get the idea there's a, there's a trajectory of the kingdom or there's a trajectory of the life of Christ that has gradually worked throughout history in order to transform it. So Paul tells us uh, in Galatians 3, 26 or 28, this is 11, I think, right here. In Galatians 3, 26 through 28, he says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There, or in Christ, there, is neither Jew nor Greek or racial distinction. There is neither slave nor free. So we could look at it today as socioeconomic distinctions. And there is neither male nor female. And he goes on to say, but we are all one in Christ. So what Paul's telling us is that because of what Jesus Christ did, we've all been elevated to the same status. And the word for sons there in the Greek is actually the word for heirs. And so some translations translate it that way. We are all heirs of God through Jesus Christ. So it's not even a gender-specific word in that sense, except that in that culture, only sons could be heirs. Women didn't have any inheritance. Slaves didn't have any inheritance. And children didn't even necessarily have an inheritance. So he's saying we've all been elevated to the same level, and there's a unity inside of Christ. Now let's look at how this has worked historically uh, throughout our society. And so I want to take the issue of slavery because I want to show you the trajectory. Now, before I do this, I want you to realize that there are scriptures from Paul. There are verses. There's one in Titus. There's one in Timothy. There's one in Ephesians that I know of for sure, where Paul tells slaves to submit to their masters. He says, submit to your master. He says, respect your master. He says, show him honor. Serve him with, with all your heart that the doctrine of God or the name of God would not be blasphemed. Now, it's hard for us in our culture, maybe, uh, many of us, to relate to that or to understand that, that that can look like an endorsement of slavery. And so what's interesting to me is that when I first started talking about gender roles from a place of uh, equality in the church, what I would use this verse, and what people would throw up at me is they would say, well, that's talking about our redemption in Christ. That's talking about our salvation in Christ. But God has an order in the home, or God has an order in society, and we need to make sure that we follow His prescribed order. So therefore, men have certain roles in the home, and women have certain roles in the home, and we completely negate the fact that Paul was saying that in Christ, there is neither male nor female. It's amazing to me that we do that. Now, to appreciate how powerful this was in the first century culture, please understand that Jewish... Now, the Greeks hated women. We'll get to that. But, I mean, the Greeks were absolute misogynists. 
terrible things that they wrote and, and said and, and, and just the way, and really the whole ancient Near Eastern culture was horrible this way, but the Jewish culture was not, not really an exception. They, they probably weren't as bad as the Greeks, but I'm going to give you an example of what Paul is dealing with. There's an ancient Jewish morning prayer that we know from the Talmud that every Jewish male would pray in the morning. They would begin their morning with prayer and they would begin it with thanking God or blessing God. And here's how that prayer began. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. Now think about that. Paul prayed that as a Jewish male. Every good Jewish male was praying that prayer at the time that Paul's writing in Galatians. And Paul writes right there in Galatians. I mean, talk about in your face. He says, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. He's completely negating the way they start their morning. Radically countercultural, is it not? And so somehow we, we have a tendency still, some of us, to diminish what, what Paul is saying here about Christ. Uh, and and we, we say, well, you know, we make all kinds of reasons to maybe not um, uh, nullify women's roles, but to minimize women's roles in the church. Now, what's interesting to me as I was doing the study, I, I thought, well, I wonder how... I wonder how the church approached this issue with slavery in America back in you know, the 1700s, 1800s. And so I began to research it, and it's interesting what I found out. First of all, I want you to know that because of the leaven of the kingdom, now I fully believe this, I may not be able to prove this, uh, but I fully believe it's the leaven of the kingdom. It's, it's the message of Christ and the power of Christ that eradicated slavery uh, in, in, in our nation. And, and I've got... Good reason to believe that because there were a lot of very vocal Christians going all the way back to the 1700s. Many of them were women, ironically. And so I want to recognize some of these groups. There were the Quakers. The Quakers were absolutely against the practice of slavery in America. The Methodists were against the practice of slavery. The Brethren were against the practice of slavery. And the Northern Baptists were against the practice of slavery. Now, there may have been others, but that's what I found in my research. On the other side of the coin, you had people that were, pro, that were pro-slavery in Christianity. All right? And I'm going to give you a few examples. Actually, the reason the Southern Baptist Convention was founded was over this issue of slavery because the Baptists wanted to abolish it and so they broke off from the northern uh, sects of the Baptists and founded the Southern Baptist Convention because they wanted to say, we're for slavery. George Whitfield, who you know is renowned in many evangelical circles as a revivalist because of his work in the First Great Awakening, advocated and worked and was very influential in passing pro-slavery laws in Georgia in the 1700s. Jonathan Edwards of uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God fame. Uh, He not only advocated for slavery, but he was a slave owner himself. And it makes sense because he came out of the Calvinist stream of predestination, which basically established a caste system, if you know anything about Hinduism, uh, where it said that God ordained and preordained and, and, and predestined uh, some people to be slaves, some people to be slave owners. And who are we to challenge the sovereignty of God? 
And so they would argue in favor of slavery. And these people are still held up as heroes in America today. I can't do that. (laughs) Now, look at something I found in the 1820 Richmond Enquirer. Now, I want you to think about this not only back then, but I want you to think about this in context of what we just watched and in context of some of the arguments you may have heard for the minimization of women's roles in the church, in the home, in society, or whatever. So the 1820 Richmond Enquirer printed a lengthy defense of slavery that was unfortunately put out by people who called themselves Christians. Here's some of their arguments. The Bible is the word of God and it is without error. And then they would go to quote in Paul where he said, slaves submit to your masters. God rightfully gave slaveholders possession and authority over their slaves. And to deny this is immoral. Challenging God's order, regardless of how repugnant it may seem to some in our day. I've heard that preached to Christian marriages forever. God has an order in the home. It's, it's the order that He has established. And the culture may be going this way, but we stick with the Word of God. The way we might write that today, if we were writing in a magazine, we might say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. The Bible is God's word in all issues of life and transcends culture. And then they said Jesus and Paul never outright condemned slavery in the Bible. And because it was so practiced in the Greco-Roman culture, surely if it was immoral, Jesus and Paul would have said as much. Now this is important because what I want you to see is, is it's true. It's absolutely true. That Paul tells slaves to submit to their masters. And it's equally true true that Paul never said a word against slavery, nor did Jesus. But my presupposition and my, my deep belief is, is that the leaven of the kingdom was sown inside society so that the trajectory of who Christ was would transform society from a dehumanizing brutal, ancient Near Eastern culture into something that would more closely reflect His plan and His purposes in Christ for a culture whether they know Jesus or not. In other words, what I'm saying is it's the, it's the incarnation of Christ and the message of the Gospel that is the leaven of the kingdom that works to eradicate injustice wherever it may be found whether people call upon Jesus or not. Because God's, because really my, 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 my conviction is, is that we're told in the Lord's Prayer to pray what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He didn't just give His Son to people that would confess Him. He didn't just give His Son to people that would follow Him. He gave His Son to the world. And so there's something so powerful about the incarnation. There's something so powerful about the victory that Jesus won at the cross and at the resurrection, that it has a transforming effect on culture, even when people choose to deny Him and curse Him and not follow Him, they cannot help but be impacted and affected by them. Hallelujah. I firmly believe that. And so therefore, the leaven has to be hidden inside the bread. Hidden. A sneak attack. There are some things that are so vile. There are some things that are so wicked. There are some things that are so evil that humanity does to itself that that God has to work uh, like stealth. (laughs) 
He has to send in like stealth bombers to, to blow it up. To get it more in line so it reflects more of His heart and His purpose and His plans. So there's a trajectory that takes place even if it's not definitely stated where it is written. And maybe even if it seems to contradict at times, it is written. So what's the lesson from this? The lesson is, is that there will always be groups that get it. That are infected by this leaven of the kingdom. And there will always be groups within Christianity that don't get it. And that carnally strive and even actively resist the kingdom movement within not just church structures, but home structures and societal structures as well. So Christ is the leaven and the bread. And in Christ, the distinctions of race, the distinctions of slavery, and the distinctions of gender do not exist. See, I know people that they know Jesus enough that they would never use Scripture today to advocate that we go back to some form of slavery. I know people that they may have... uh, you know, prejudices and racial tendencies inside their life that they don't recognize that are there, right? But they're not going to stand up and advocate unless you're a member of the KKK or the Jonesboro Baptist Church or something. And those people wouldn't know Jesus if he split the sky and came out on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. But most people that love God, that know Jesus, aren't going to advocate for a reestablishment of a structure that they know darn well the kingdom of God is against. But we'll turn back around and advocate for a structure in the gender area. In other words, we don't apply the same criteria. We, we, we don't apply the criteria and say there's a social order for slavery. We don't promote a criteria that says there's a social order that justifies racism. But we will c- come along and say there is a criteria of order in the home, in the church, or whatever that, 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 that tries to remove the distinction that has been erased in Christ between male and female. When I first taught this, I had somebody come and say, well, well, then what about people that are transgender? I'm like, are you kidding me? You're trying to make Christ transgender. Like he's confused on his, his gender. Like, really? My point is, don't we know this? Don't we know that who we are in Christ needs to transcend any other distinction? If, if somebody has committed sin in their life, we don't label them. At least it's not the heart of God. God doesn't label them a sinner. The Bible says that, that heaven rejoices when a sinner comes home. Uh, when the prodigal son came home, the, it was the older brother that was trying to label the prodigal son as, as a sinner. The father was celebrating his identity as a son. And so I want you to know today, whoever you are, whatever the color of your skin is, whatever your status is in life, whatever your gender is, I want you to know that heaven celebrates you and when God looks at you he doesn't see these distinctions these stupid distinctions that we seem intent on maintaining between gender roles at all he sees Christ he sees an heir you have full access to the anointing you have full access to the wisdom of God the power of God the authority of God you have full access to anything that God died that Jesus died for you to have because who you are in Christ is greater than who you are in the flesh And if you'll believe that, you'll come into an incredible freedom, an incredible empowerment.
And if the church would get a hold of it, man, the leaven of the kingdom would, would just destroy the bondages and the labels and, and the power of all that stuff that keeps us divided and keeps us hating on one another and oppressing one another and labeling one another and judging one another. My God, what we've done to the family. I mean, family's not my message. That's coming later. But, but what we've done to the family and that we, we've held up idols. You know, I have a friend that says that, that the human heart is idol-making factories. And my heart breaks for people who don't fit the role of the perfect husband, that don't fit the role of the perfect wife, that don't fit the role of having the perfect children. My God, we're the only, we're the only group on the planet that I know of that we're supposed to be offering support to one another, but my God, let a pastor's kid get on drugs or something, and you watch the vipers come out. You watch them start quoting scripture. If a man can't rule his own household, then he's not fit to serve in the house of God. Somebody goes through a broken marriage, you watch the vipers come out. Well, the Bible says you're supposed to be the husband of one, you know, that a bishop is supposed to be the husband of one wife. And they'll even say, he said husband of one wife, he didn't say wife of one husband. So therefore, if you're going to be a bishop, you have to be a man. So people go through broken situations in their life when they're in desperate need of the kingdom of God, but we offer them unleavened bread. We offer them the law. You realize that the whole Mosaic economy, Moses, got started on unleavened bread. Did you know that? Because when they're in Egypt, when there's a Passover, God told them, sweep all the leaven out. Now, they would tell you the application was we had to get all of Egypt, and they would say that leaven was a type of sin. Had to get all the sin out of the house. And I've heard lots of messages, probably preached a couple, about, you know, get the leaven out. I know some of you that grew up in Pentecostalism, you heard those messages, come on. I know I'm distracting you right now because I'm so handsome. I know, I'm sorry, ladies. It's my wonderful physique and... My awesome sense of style, I know, has you so distracted, but come on, help me out this morning. Don't try not to get distracted by the package and listen to the message. Some of you heard, get the leaven out. I'm telling you, we need to get the leaven in. I want to tell you, the, I think the reason God had them sweep all the leaven out was because the resurrection hadn't happened yet. He wanted them eating unleavened bread because it didn't have any life in it. And He was trying to show them that life couldn't come from legalism or from the law. But when Jesus came, and He... That He was hidden in three measures of meals. So after the resurrection, Jesus is walking with two of His disciples. And he opens the Scriptures and he takes them through the law, through the Psalms, and through the prophets, and says, hidden inside all of that, did you not know that Messiah had to suffer and be raised up before he could enter into his glory? And what he's saying is, is all, and when Jesus, Jesus was carrying you, daughters, Jesus was carrying you, men, when he was dying, you were dying. He was, he was carrying all of humanity. So when he suffered, he bore the punishment of systemic evil. He bore the punishment of racism. He bore the punishment of, of oppressive evil, systemically evil structures that had forgotten about God so that you and I could die to those structures and be dead to those structures. And then He raised from the dead and He moved us into glory. And when He moved us into glory, there's a feast now with leavened bread inside of it. The life of Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus Christ. And we need to come out of the unleavened feast and move into the leavened feast and let it take its trajectory in our lives in every aspect. 
Come on now. Now, okay, so Paul says, just like Paul says some things to slaves, Paul also has some interesting things to say about women. And I'm not going to touch on some of them, but we'll get to them in the series, right? Because there's a place where he says, keep silent in the church, or so we think. And we'll deal with that. The place where he says, women can't teach or have authority over men. We'll deal with that. All right? But please understand that, that Paul, in his letters, he's accomplished, he has two purposes in his letters. Two purposes. Everybody say two. Now, if you go back and you read his letters, you will see this very, very clearly. He always starts out with what we would call theological statements, or let me say it this way. He starts out with timeless truths about Christ. He starts out with things like, if any man is in Christ, if anyone, it's it's not gender specific. It is in our Bibles, but it's not in the original language. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, all things have become new. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. So he's, he's bringing forth the revelation of who Christ is. But now here's the problem or the dilemma or the opportunity, depending on how you look at it. Because Jesus said in the parable that the yeast is hidden inside the loaf. If it doesn't get in the loaf, it cannot have the effect of infecting it and changing it and transforming it. So there's all these wonderful eternal truths about who you are in Christ, but they have to be worked out in the context, in a cultural context, in a practical cultural way, inside the culture, not outside the culture. So one option would have been, okay, we're going to try and start our own commune, and we're going to be totally other than society. We're going to be totally other than the world. We're going to come out from among them, and we're just going to be yeast. That all just practices that character and that nature of Christ. Or, because God loves society, and we're not going to pull ourselves out and let the rest of them go to hell. We're going to be that yeast, but we're going to be hidden inside a loaf. And so what Paul does is brilliant. It's brilliant what Paul does. What he does is he says, okay, here's the reality of who you are. Here's the reality of what God's done for you in and through Christ. Now, when you get to the second part of Paul's letters, it's here how that's wor- here's how that is worked out in a very practical, cultural context. Or here's how the leaven gets into the unleavened bread to do its work. So when we get to the latter part of Paul's letters, he's talking about culturally specific things. Now, here's what you and I need to realize. Your culture today is absolutely nothing like the ancient Near Eastern culture 2,000 years ago. A major reason for that is because the leaven got hidden. See, I thought to be a purist, I had to go back to the original pattern not realizing that that robs us of the benefits of 2,000 years of leaven working inside the culture. Are you tracking with me? So you have a morality. Here's what I'm saying. You have a morality that is, just as a Westerner, not even as a Christian, you have a morality that's completely foreign to the ancient Near East. And the reason you have that morality is because of Christ and His impact on Western culture. 
So in some ways, the culture today is more reflective of the purposes of God, way more reflective of the purposes of God from a moral standpoint than the ancient culture because of Christ and what he's done. But what we do is we have a tendency to negate the mystery of Christ and then we exalt what Paul said was culturally specific. And we say this is a timeless truth for all times and we minimize or negate what's over here. So, for example, going back to the issue of American slavery, you have those in the church that are saying, no, this is the power of the kingdom. This is the heart of God. That, that there be equality, that there be freedom, that, that, that this be abolished. And then you have, uh, that, what are they doing? They're magnifying scriptures like Galatians 3 and hanging their hat on Galatians 3, 28, right? 26, 27. But then you had others that said, no, 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 no. The Word of God over here says, slaves, submit to your masters. And they're hanging their hat on that. And we have to decide today which group we're going to be in. I have to be honest, as I was reading some of these stories, I was inspired by the price that people paid to take a stand to change culture based on Christian values and how weak and wimpy we are today uh, when it comes to upholding uh, values that are clearly biblical, but because we don't want to rock the boat or rock the rolls, we actually think we're fighting for righteousness or we're afraid to take a stand. All right. Thank you. thought maybe you all were getting distracted again. All right, so let's look at this just really quickly from Ephesians 5, and I'll give you an example. Now, one of the things you have to understand about ancient culture was in the Roman culture, there was this thing called a uh, patria potestas. My apologies to all the Italian people in the house. For butchering your language, but uh, or Latin or what close enough, right? Patria potestas. It was the law of the father, and this was non-negotiable in Roman law, and it gave the oldest male member of the family, usually the father, absolute rule within the family. Now, be mindful of the fact that a household, absolute rule within the household, and the household consisted of wives, children, and slaves. They were all seen as the possessions of the patria, the father. And so therefore he had sovereign control over them. Only the father had rights, only he could go to court. Only he had rights in society. And he had control over his persons, even his children, even his wives, even to a right to inflict capital punishment. Can I just say, it's one of the reasons introducing Sharia law is so dangerous. Because you're dealing with a religious culture that wants to take you back 2,000 years because they don't think in terms of the incarnation and the resurrection and the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. It's an attempt to get the leaven out of the loaf. Don't be fooled by it. All right. Only the father had rights in the eyes of society, and he had control over persons, even to a right to inflict capital punishment. So if your child got out of hand, you could kill him. No punishment. It was your right. And the entire ancient Near East, I know I was doing this in the first service, I started talking about this. I think some of the men started dreaming about uh, everything under my control. 
my little kingdom. But that's really the issue, isn't it, in the church? Because it's been mostly run by men. So we try to institute things. It's very fracturing. It's very damaging. All right. So in every culture in the ancient Near East, they had a household code that told the underlings, can I use that term? What their responsibilities were to the father, to the patria. There was not, there was not, according to one scholar, there was not a household code that could be found anywhere in the ancient Near East that put any responsibilities on the father. He was not responsible to the wives, the kids, in any way, shape, or form. Now, Paul has his own household code in Ephesians 5, because what he's doing is he's saying, okay, in Ephesians he talks about the leaven of the kingdom. We're seated in Christ. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's removed every barrier and every distinction. He's created one new man. Let's walk in the unity of our faith. But then he gets to the practical side and says, okay, here's how we live this out. In a society where the household code is law and rule. And where you don't get a fair trial, especially as a Jew or as a non-Roman, they just crucify you. They just kill you. Look what happened to Jesus. So they have to figure out how to live that within that cultural context. Does that make sense to you? So in Ephesians 5.18, I'm just going to read it quickly. Ephesians 5.18, this is where the household code for Paul begins. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Do you see what he's doing? saying, here's the example of Christ, and he's introducing the leaven inside the household code, putting it on the man in order to bring about the trajectory of transformation. You see it? Let's just go down um, to chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy a long life in the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly, yada, yada, yada. Come down to verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Do you see the brilliance of what he's doing? 
Is his intent, oh, let's maintain the culture of slavery? What's he saying? He's putting an injunction on the master saying, he actually calls the master, he calls the patria a slave. He says, you have the same master, Jesus, and make sure you treat him as an equal, knowing that you're all equal in Christ. He does say, wives, submit to your husbands, but then he goes on and on and on telling the husbands, but look what Jesus Christ did. So allow the co-suffering, self-giving, sacrificial love of Christ. See, he's sowing. What's he doing? He's putting leaven inside the bread. Do you see it? He's not establishing a rule for every situation in life, in every culture, in every situation. He, if we could just get this smart, if we could understand the issue is the gospel, the issue is the person of Christ, the issue is the lordship of Jesus Christ, the issue is loving your neighbor as yourself, the issue is loving your enemies, the issue is loving one another. And then say, okay, let's think like Paul. How can we work that out inside our own cultural context? I cannot give you... The, the, the Bible is not a recipe book for a good life. I, I hate to tell you that, but it's not. People try to use it that way like it's an encyclopedia for how to fix things. And I used to preach it. If you want to have a good marriage, and husbands, you go to the Bible and find out what it tells you to do. And wives, you go to the Bible and find out what it tells you to do. And you put it together and... Presto, mix it together like a nice little recipe, and here you go. And it so diminishes who Jesus Christ is. Because here's the reality. He's risen, and His Spirit lives inside your heart. And you are tailor-made. And the person you're living with is tailor-made. And you have competing values, and you have competing interests, and you have, you have different life experiences, and different bitter roots that get in the way. And so you've got to figure it out. And what works for this couple over here isn't necessarily going to work for this couple over here. And if you're struggling, we shouldn't put a bunch of condemnation on you and guilt and shame because you're not living up to the will of God. We should, we should say, okay, let's get Christ in there. Let's get the love of God in there. Instead of going to the Bible and beating yourself up because you're not the, the prophet, priest, and king of your own home, or, or beating yourself up because you're not the Proverbs 31 woman. Come on, ladies. And trying to live up to some idolatrous standard that the church has thrown out there because they completely miss Paul and what he's trying to say. Instead say, you know what? You need to learn how to hear from God. You need to learn what is Jesus saying? What is the wisdom of God? What is What does co-suffering, self-giving love look like in the context of your relationship. Because chances are it's going to look totally different than it does in the context of my relationship. So therefore, I cannot take my template and give it to you. Because you end up running a playbook that you're not equipped to run. You're playing basketball when God has you playing football. And I'm trying to tell you how to play basketball. Trust God inside you. All right, just real quickly, because I've got to finish here, but just real quickly, this is interesting. In Ephesians 5, 18 through 6, 9, Paul's code is unique because it assigned responsibilities to the head of the household. Now watch this. There are five commands to the father. There are two commands put upon the children. 
There's basically one command put upon the slaves. But you know what, ladies? There's zero. I'm sorry, guys. It's just, it's, it's there. We're people of the book. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I hate to break it to you, but in actuality, in the original language, there's zero commandments to the women. Wait a minute. I can hear you guys saying, well, wait a minute, because it said in their wives submit to your husbands. But that's the interesting thing about the Greek language. It's, in some ways, it's not precise at all, and in other ways, it's very precise. And the tenses in Greek are very precise. And so if you want to communicate a message that is a command, you put it in what's called the imperative tense, which means you are ordered, you are commanded to do this. And what you find to the father is in the imperative tense. What you find twice to the children, like obey your parents, is in the imperative tense. It's a command. It's even written in the Ten Commandments. What's written to the slave? slaves was imperative But wives, submit to your husbands, respect your husband, is in a subjunctive tense. And the subjunctive tense is more like a good suggestion. It's like a potential possibility. It's like, I'm really hoping for this. It's like, well, if you take my advice, I would do it like this. You see what he's doing? He's saying, what would happen in that culture? Just, just hear me out. What would have happened in that culture if instead of beating the hell out of their kids when they disobeyed, the fathers started to nurture them, the fathers started to nurture them and raise them in the love of Christ. Put, put yourself in an ancient Near Eastern context. What would have happened instead of treating your wives like property, you treated her like Christ treated the church. And you began to model the kenosis, the the self-giving of Christ in the context of your relationship with your wife. What if that was your goal? And what if instead of beating your slaves, you started to treat your slave like an equal, like like a partner in the business, rather than exploiting them as a means to the end. And, and what if the children started obeying the parents? And what if the wives didn't take advantage out of bitterness of the, the, the low place that the husband was taking, but they said, okay, I'm going to submit to you because we're supposed to submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. And what would have happened if slaves started serving wholeheartedly their masters and then people in that culture suddenly get a picture of what Christ looks like. The word suddenly becomes enculturated. The word suddenly becomes flesh. What would that have been like? Do you see what Paul was doing brilliantly? So beloved, we shouldn't hang our hat on a few prescriptions and think somehow that's going to fix everything in life because I'm going to tell you right now, it ain't going to work. I've been at this too long. You know, they've shown this in studies that, that um, submission breeds contempt. In other words, if, if, here's what happens psychologically to you. If I'm, relating to my, if I'm relating to my wife and she has an injunction, an imperative over her life. See, Paul was brilliant. She has an imperative over her life. You have to submit and do everything I say. 
then I don't know if she's going along to go along or if she really loves me. I don't know if she's doing it because she loves me and she wants to or if she's doing it because she's following a law and she has to and she's conforming to a pattern. And so what happens, they've shown this in studies, what happens inside the heart of the person is that that doubt begins to creep inside and then they begin to resent that person for constantly just going along to go along and, and, and it does not produce love. Getting awful quiet in this Methodist church. <laughs> Do you see it? See, as a church, we shouldn't be a century behind on women's rights. It shouldn't be that a woman can flourish in every other aspect of society if she wants to as a career choice except the church. How, how is it that the Catholics teach you that Mary carried inside her own body for nine months the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but is somehow unfit to invoke the blessing before the congregation that makes the bread and wine become the body and the blood of the Lord because they're a woman? Let me, I, I turned this off too soon. Let me, yeah, I did. Let, let's finish with this. The thing that that lady wrote there. Um, I have to look up here because I, I turned mine off because I was done. I'm done after this. So, yeah, right here, look at this. This lady, Kate Wallace, I have no idea who she is, but we're giving her credit anyway. She could be told heathen for I know, but <laughs> you could just look at the principles, all right? Because <laughs> I know how you all are. You know, Google some of you. Jesus told a woman to spread the good news of his resurrection, but we won't let a woman preach it from the pulpit. Now, not us, we. This is, but you get the point, right? Jesus engaged in cross-gender discipleship, but we teach that this is somehow dangerous or overly tempting. Jesus depended upon the financial support from women for the welfare of his ministry, but we teach that men are to be the primary providers in Christian communities. Or like I was taught, you've got to be the breadwinner in the home. You've got to make more money than your wife. And you've got to have the checkbook because whoever has the checkbook controls. And so you need to get your um, mail parts out of her purse. And I was actually told that. Imagine a fine male specimen like me being told that. But Jesus depended on financial support from the women. Jesus used women in his stories and teaching, but we teach that Christianity is supposed to have a masculine feel. God allowed a young woman, here's this, God allowed a young woman to carry the body and blood of Jesus in her for nine months, but we teach that a woman cannot serve communion. Jesus denied that there was a hierarchy in his kingdom, but we teach that there is a hierarchy between men and women. Finally, she says, I know that Paul wrote some things that have caused us to be overly concerned about a woman's place, but if we believe in something that is inconsistent with Jesus' life, perhaps we've gotten it wrong. Now, I know I've scared some of you because maybe you depended on that structure inside your own marriage and family. Can I tell you, 
let God dismantle those things. It may be rough at first, but I'm telling you that is not a good foundation for your marriage. It is not. So you're just building your house on the sand. So if you want to keep, because you're afraid of being shaken, you want to keep building your house on the sand, then go ahead. But it ain't going to work. Because the foundation, the rock foundation, is who Christ is. Why don't you let the love of God transform your heart? Why don't you worry more about that rather than trying to worry about your role or try to worry about the role of your spouse and what they may or may not be doing? Why don't you make it your goal? I'm going to allow the love of Christ to transform my marriage. I'm going to allow the love of Christ by, by, by transforming my heart. I realized there were triggers. There were things that got programmed into me early on that were triggers that my wife, like, this is how God does this stuff, man. I mean, you know, relationships are the crucible of Christ-likeness. Did you hear me? Relationships are the crucible that produces Christ-likeness. And so there are things in my life that were triggers that my wife would do, and I would react thinking it was her, but I was reacting to other circumstances and situations in my life that emotionally hurt me that I had not yet dealt with. And so she would do something and it would fire a trigger off in me and all of a sudden I would feel her and I would project onto her and say, you hurt me. And it wasn't until I quit trying to fix the marriage by the book that I could go into my own heart and every time I get triggered I say, this is me, I'm producing this. This is coming from inside of me. And take it to the Lord and say, Lord, heal me. And you know what happened? I got the most wonderful, I think. Back me up here. She's just distracted by all that handsomeness up here. I know. My heart got healed. My heart got healed. So maybe I could have fixed the relationship, but I couldn't have fixed me. So it's the goodness of God. Amen. All right. If you're a lady and you've been stomped on, stepped on, spit on, no. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, if, if, if the way the church, this is a specific thing I'm asking you to respond to. If the way that the church has talked about and taught issues about women, and it's caused you to feel limited. Uh, it's damaged you in some cases psychologically, spiritually, or emotionally. We want to minister to you this morning, okay? So um, we're just going to put some music on. I'm not even going to have the worship team come up. Um, but we're going to have, I'm going to turn it back over to Shelly. And... Uh, I can't remember if it was you or Trent this morning. So I'm turning back over to Shelly. And, uh, and then we'll have our ministry teams come up. But I really believe with all my heart that, that, that some of you have been impacted, affected. If not, that's great. We're, we're doing great. But if you need it, if you'd like it, if you'd want it, I believe there will be a healing presence from Jesus Christ today that will begin a reconstructing process that will bear much fruit in you in the future. And please come back the next few weeks 
uh, as we take this journey and look at all these scriptures together because this will be incredibly liberating and incredibly healing and incredibly empowering for you.